0: Welcome to part two in our look at class inequality. On today's show, we will speak to our experts about class inequality in Australia. What are some of the ways we can help change class inequality? What new approaches do we need to consider to ensure we are hearing from a broad range of people in the most powerful places? Welcome to part two on this topic on what happens next. John Thwaites is a professorial fellow at Monash University. He's chair of Monash Sustainable Development Institute and Climate Works Australia. Professor John Thwaites. What do you think we need to do to try to improve it in Australia? If you could wave a magic wand now and try to sort out some of our class inequality, what would you do?
1: I think uh, there are a number of things. Uh, The first is to understand that this is not inevitable. Class inequality. You sometimes hear people say, oh, it's linked to globalization or artificial intelligence. Actually, the thing that drives inequality more than anything is political decisions. Mm. Decisions about things like taxes, who pays the taxes, wages, whether wages are going to go up, uh, benefits, how benefits are paid. So there are clear political decisions that can be changed that will reduce inequality. I mean, tax is the the classic example Uh, in this country, like a number of others, we actually tax capital at a lower rate than income. So that means someone who's on a very large income and can invest in shares and property ends up getting taxed at half the rate of a cleaner on $50,000 a year. Mm. So, that's the first thing that our tax system needs to recognise that uh, we should be aiming for equality, not inequality, and that means taxing more fairly. I also think our welfare system needs to be looked at. So, once again, in the last 10 years, 15 years, we've gone backwards in uh, some of our welfare area, particularly unemployment benefits, where uh, 15, 20 years ago, the unemployment benefit was at about, The poverty line, now it's 30% below the poverty line. Mm. So that's a choice that we make as a community and we could change that.
0: Why do you think we don't? Uh,
1: Well, I think because those who are benefiting have had the political power and uh, they've been able to convince those in governments around the country uh, to to put the money in their, in their area, not in the other. I mean, the classic was the debate we had about franking credits before the last election. I, mean, I, I find the idea that someone who makes a whole lot of money out of shares and then expects to get a cash payment for that, extraordinary. While, you know, an average worker, as I say, a cleaner or something like that, a, a worker in a, in a shop, is expected to pay full tax. So I think that's another area. Then I think the other big area that historically uh, Australia has been proud of is to have high levels of employment, low levels of unemployment. But once again, in more recent years, we've got used to thinking that 5 or 6% is the right level. We should be targeting 3%, much lower levels of unemployment. That means that those people that have been long-term unemployed have more chance of getting a job. And we put more effort into skills, training up people, rather than uh, thinking that a level of unemployment is a good thing because it keeps wages down. So there's a a few things. One, our tax system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second, to look at our welfare system. And third, wages, to drive up wages through lower unemployment.
0: Here's journalist and author Rick Morton and imagine if we do change things right Mm now you can wave your magic wand and we finally start getting things right about class inequality in Australia what does that society look like in 100 years
2: it it, it looks like fairness (laughs) it's like and and here's the thing we think it's just about money and to a large degree it is right um there are studies done where the best thing to help people out of poverty believe it or not is money um just (laughs) give them money don't on tell the them Instagram how to spend post. it. Instagram post. That's weird. Uh, Yeah, it's yeah, it's not teak. It's not, you know, some antique or whatever. It's just <laughs> money. Um, and it's money without conditions because poor people, um, and I, god, I even the term I hate, but you know, people like my family, we know how to spend money. We know how to make a dollar go <laughs> around the world twice. Like it is a phenomenal kind of bookkeeping ability that is there because you have to have it, right? But it's also about the the other things where we think, you know, oh, okay, well, we've got hex for university, right? So you can just go to university and study and bang, there's your job. A, there's no guarantees because of the way the, you know, the employment market works. But B, it's not just about paying for the degree, particularly if you move from a country town to a city where you have to go to a university. Um, and you don't have money to pay your own rent. So you've got to work. And automatically now you've got a different playing field to people who actually live in the same city as their parents and can stay at home while they study or get subsidised rent. And so all of these little things um, actually make a huge difference. I dropped out of uni because I couldn't hack it um, I on so many different levels. Um, and that was partly because of my class. It was partly because of my cultural access. It was partly because of my, my mental health. Um, but I don't have a degree because of it. And so... All You know, if we get these settings right and if we have a true understanding, which can only come, by the way, from people, you know, who come from those backgrounds in the room making decisions with people who have the power, um, it's not just the case of saying, um, all right, well, you know, we we gave you hex. Why aren't you finishing university? Or you finish your degree, but why don't you have a job? Mm. It's all the other attendant kind of social forces that come with class and that 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 cultural kind of upbringing that you may or may not have. But if you get those things right, um, then you actually live in a society, in, you know, a country um, where people who have intellect, who have ideas, who have really stunning things to contribute to the world can actually contribute them. Um, Some of the smartest people I've ever met have been in public housing, Um, you know, just real tinkerers and thinkers and philosophers who, for whatever reason, have been kept in place and some of them seemed happy enough in those circumstances, but others I knew um, for sure should have been able to do more.
0: Mm. Rick Morton, thank you so much for your time
2: today. Thanks for having me, Susan. I appreciate it.
0: Tony Moore is a historian whose work has included researching the Australian working class, how they see themselves and express themselves and their impact on national identity, Historian Professor Tony
3: Moore. My, my key sort of expertise interest is in the area of, of culture and the different different ways class relations produce inequality in culture, but also potential and possibility. I guess I make the argument that working class people have a positive culture. It is constantly changing. It is diverse. It changed with post-war immigration. We had immense immigration in the 19th century and it was incredibly diverse. Uh, So there's not just one Anglo type of male working class culture, but many people, many groups that we might now give them an identity as people of colour or uh, their gender identity or their sexual identity, that also is enwrapped in an elegant way with class and Sociology and cultural studies uh, need and history need to understand that, and, they, and it does.
0: How do you think the historians of the future will look back at this time in Australia and understand our position on class?
3: Um, I was gobsmacked when uh, my friend and colleague Peter Lewis at Essential uh, did a poll that said 31% of Australians still regard themselves as working class. Uh,
0: what because what percentage would it actually be?
3: Uh, well I would say that's... It would probably be bigger because we're used to thinking of class as manual work from an earlier period. Mm-hmm. So it's a nostalgic notion.
0: Right. If oh, you're a plumber, you're working class. Yes.
3: Now, plumbers may have a different relationship as a self-employed yeah. contractor. So are business owners now. Paul Keating wasn't made up. He was a real person and the economy was liberated by Hawke and Keating. And so tradies can paradoxically... Be a contract tradie in a mine and be a member of the CFMEU. They can own shares and and that. But culturally, they inherit a culture from their parents and they live in particular suburbs. And if they're in, as maybe New South Wales, they might not aspire for university for their children, for example. So it's where you live. Uh, so that's complicated. But the the people we don't think about are the huge army of precarious migrant workers who are doing the nursing, uh, the cleaning, the Uber driving, who maybe aren't unionised, um, are not are falling between the cracks. And that's where new politics is forming. We saw the case about the Uber the other day. You know, This used to be on the wharves and then the wharf- wharfies who had a very strong communist union fought back and kind of so they, they used to have zero hours contracts and turn up every day and find out if they're working that's a terrible imagine what it does to your mind whether particularly if you're a woman working in a factory or on a, as a cleaner in a shop and you may or, or doing piecework at home you don't know when you'll be working um, you don't know uh, when you'll be forced to work so job uh, work choices were about that uh, and Australians, have a basic sense of uh, right and decency around working things. So when they look back, I think they'll say things, eyes went off the ball, people tried to have a kind of uh, make w- what labour as cheap as possible and I hope they'll say people fought back. And I'm really interested in kind of the <sighs> of negative development that's happened in the last 30 years where we think we're, and it may be partly because... Um, of reduced working class participation in cultural industries and in politics. But um, where we think of working class people as disadvantaged and worthy of middle class charity mm. and they have to be compensated and brought up, whereas when I was growing up, as I said, they were the, f- the a force of progress and we looked to what their cultural resources were to maybe... Build a, a new politics, improve things, and we wouldn't think now to call Abri- Abri- to not say that Aboriginal people don't have a culture, a yes. positive culture, a diverse culture that is used as resources, or or people from non English speaking backgrounds, and we let the ball go on the notion of class there, and uh, it suited a certain way of the, doing the economy. The neoliberal moment I think to think of people as just individualized socioeconomic statistics but if you think of it as a living class a way of life in regions in communities uh, and we do longitudinal work I think we can think of the resources uh, to improve and build those situations and build politics.
0: Tony Moore thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you Susan
0: for our final word, here's author Bree Lee. Hi, I'm Brie, Breeley Lee, uh, and
4: I'm now an author, um, but I'm also a legal researcher and activist and sort of freelance journalist based in Sydney. If I could point to specific fixes um, that might have a positive impact on how class segregated our schooling system is. The thing that really gets me is that private schools, so Catholic and independent schools, are allowed to use all kinds of basically vetting procedures to choose the students that they are even willing to take. And they also get public money. And so the first step for me would be to say that any, any educational institution that wants public money is not allowed to discriminate on mass. Like they have to educate anyone who knocks on their door. But then the problem that is automatically presented to us, which brings me to my sort of second point, is that Australia is also extraordinarily segregated by postcodes. Mm. And it's related to this generation intergenerational problem of housing, housing availability and housing inequality. And so even if you Even if I snap my fingers now and every school had to take any student, you know, within a catchment zone, for example, you still just have this huge problem of entire areas of Australia being significantly wealthier than entire other areas. Mm -hmm. Um, And that brings me to the second point about inequality, I would say, which comes down to housing. And there is so much about the Australian identity that is also connected to real estate. Uh, it's just this, part, uh, yeah, it's part of the Australian dream, but I think it's it's even more than that, this crazy bubble that just never bursts actually really um, and how plenty of other places overseas have um, much more of a balance between tenant and landlord rights. They have things like 99-year leases or like lifetime leases. The way other places conceptualise of... of making a home in a place that you don't necessarily own in other Mm. places home ownership isn't seen as this I mean rite of passage it's not necessarily seen as a um indicator of, of class or 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 so much it's not so connected to identity as it is here and I see housing availability housing inequality and these issues with regards to education as very um
0: interconnected Ray, do you have any examples of where things are working well or at least looking promising in us tackling class inequality in Australia?
4: Yeah, one very specific example is that in amongst the announcements that the Education Minister made last year about university funding, which were for the most part, in my opinion, absurd and disastrous, one thing that Dantian did identify was scholarship opportunities and extra funding for what I typically referred to as first in family students. And I'm so really, if, what,
0: is that, what does that mean? What does yeah, first in family mean? Yeah, I'm
4: really interested in this because it's what I care about trying to us trying to sort of get better and do better at. Is it just means that a person who has no like parents in particular, but no other family members who've ever gone to university, um, at encouraging them to feel like university is a place for them, but also removing opportunity costs and barriers to them, often things like having to relocate to be able to, like, get anywhere close to a campus Mm -hmm. um, or people who have caring obligations. Um, And what I'm interested in is, um, for example, a friend of mine who works at... um, a university in Townsville who spoke to me incredibly about what a high proportion of her students in Townsville are first in family and often also um, mature age students who are women who have raised children and are finally at a stage in their lives where they have a chance to go and get the education they always wanted to that because of caring obligations and opportunity costs they couldn't do before um, and I don't believe our sandstone universities do a good enough job at trying to actually open their gates to everyone. And I would say also that this is, I hope, a really recurring theme throughout the book that I discovered, because the book goes, you know, in all different directions in all different places. But the thing I just couldn't get over is how so many of our processes and schools and institutions and systems supposedly are about knowledge sharing and actually get all of their value by virtue of who they can exclude. Mm. Um, And so what I'm interested in is looking at any schools any universities, any scholarships, any programs, whatever, any facet of the Academy that are actually willing to try and open their doors properly instead (laughs) of the places who just bolster this image of power and bolster this sense of, um, pride in exclusivity. You know, we, even when we hear reports about secondary schools, particularly in Sydney, you know, we hear this phrase, for example, um, this is one of Sydney's most exclusive schools. That should be embarrassing. <laughs> if the school is supposed to be about teaching and about knowledge sharing, what are we communicating to our young people that the best part about it is the number of people it doesn't let in? Um, yeah, such a, it's a really core cool problem. And so I think incentives for first-in-families, incentives for carers to go back and retrain, Mm. um, those are things where we are able to, we have the sort of terminology and language and understanding that that we will get a return on those investments. That gives Mm. me a bit of optimism. Mm. It's absurd.
0: Brie, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, that flew by. Thanks for having me. that's it for this episode and for this topic a big thank you to all our guests and as always more information on what we talked about today can be found in the show notes we are back next week with a brand new topic